Rationem, a novel by Whiskey Emerson. Six. Marigold, this is Gardenia. Copy? Nothing but static again. Marigold. Marigold, this is Gardenia. I apologize for the hour. It's early as hell, but wake up, Marigold. Static. I turn to Avery. I'll give it another few minutes to get a response, but otherwise, I think we're shit out of... Morgan's voice came booming in return. Jesus fucking Christ, Gardenia, it's 4.30 in the morning. I know, Marigold, my apologies. What on God's green earth is so damn important? Well, I begin, attempting to keep my voice casual. I need three horses ready to ride as soon as humanly possible. What? Horses? What the hell is this about, Gardenia? I stop for a second before I respond. Marigold, we lost another post. It was the heathens, just a few hours ago. In return, there is a long silence. Well, that's something, I suppose. Can you get the horses ready, I ask? Yeah, yeah, I can. Good. Snapdragon, Aster, Callan, Coey, and I will have them out riding for a few hours, um, recreationally. Gardenia, that's four flowers and three horses, hon. Do you really want Callan Coey riding one of your pack, Marigold? There's static once more. Then I hear her laugh into the radio. Yeah, you're right. That's fair. I can have him ready in about two hours. A little more, I'd expect. Gotta get fed first. We'll see you at seven sharp. See you then. Marigold out. Gardenia out. As I hang up the microphone, Avery sinks back into her chair, relieved. Well, I guess we better get some coffee on board. You sure you don't want to try and sleep a few more hours, I ask? After seeing Skyliner on fire, I don't think I'm going to sleep until we raid the compound, she admits. You really think Cal's keycard is going to get us in? That's why we go scout first, I explain. If we think it's a suicide mission, we don't move forward. It's that simple. Well, son of a dick, everything feels like a suicide mission. I don't react, mainly because I agree with her. I should get some water boiling, I reply, changing the subject. Let the others sleep until we need to get ready. A few hours pass, and with an exorbitant amount of coffee on board, I feel sharp as we pile into Cecily's old Jeep. Cecily takes the wheel to drop us off at Morgan's, and I hop into the passenger seat while Sierra, Avery, and Katie pile into the back. As we pull out of Gibbs's compound, the three in the rear commence a final check of their magazines and gear, whereas I sit quietly, staring at the road, after having inspected every inch of my tackle at least eight or nine times through. The utility belt around my waist holds seven extra magazines of 9mm ammo, my Kershaw, a bundle of jerky, wire, and duct tape, and tightly secured over my shoulder is a canteen of water. Katie is armed with her AR and a small pack of supplies around her waist. Avery has her katana sheathed at her hip and a fanny of first aid materials on the other, and Sierra's handmade crossbow and quiver are strapped to her back, along with a small rucksack of provisions. Not one of us wants a fight but we're more than prepared for anything unexpected. And my only hope is that this scouting trip will give us the information we need to raid the army and outlast what I can only assume will be a full-on war with the heathens sooner rather than later. You think you'll get ambushed? Cecily asks from the driver's seat, low so only I can hear. Nah, I tell her softly. The army doesn't think we have the balls to do something like this, and the heathens just wrapped raiding Skyliner. We should have a few days of of peace until they start raiding again. Well, what about Cal? I peek over at her, her dark brown hair blowing wild in the wind. What about Cal, Sess? He wants you dead. You need to be careful. You know if he comes close, I'll put a bullet in his head. Right now, I'm more worried about us getting through a scorched summer in the desert with heathens rampaging from every direction. Do you really think Megan is alive? I bite my lip. I fucking hope so, Cecily. We need her. We need the shadows. We need everyone who isn't a heathen or the army to survive. You know, I think you're right. About what? Cecily's eyes go back to the road. I think they're going to come to us. My gaze stays on her. What makes you say that? Alexa doesn't just show up for nothing. She knows we're in trouble. So do the shadows. So now it's just a matter of time before the shadows appear. And you think like I do, 
Megan is possibly helping the shadows? I think there's a lot of things we haven't known in the past, and the blindfolds are about to come off. For the remainder of the drive, Cecily's words echo in my head. The blindfolds are about to come off. In the years I'd been close with Gibbs, I firmly believed I was aware of a far bigger scope of her purpose than any of the rest of the neighborhood watch. However, over the course of these last few days, I can't help but doubt the depth of my knowledge regarding the range of clans surviving around Bend. Is it really possible that Gibbs hid every one of us from her contact with the shadows? Was there some sort of secret covenant to help us outlast the end of days that we did not comprehend? Had I been blind? Or had I just not wanted to see? Our arrival at Morgan's farm is expected, and she is waiting for us at the gate, her expression grim, yet welcoming as she unfastens the lock and chain to allow us onto her property. Cecily speeds through, then stops, giving Morgan enough time to secure the gate shut once again and hop onto the back of the jeep to ride down to her barn. None of us speak, wanting to get off and away from the main road as soon as possible before we slow down and enlighten Morgan of last night's tragedy, the ache of losing Skyliner, an open wound in every one of our chests. We cover the half mile of dirt road rapidly, and just ahead, our three horses are tacked up and ready to ride, patiently shifting from hoof to hoof, tails fighting off the flies, and their reins wrapped tight around the hitch rail. The second Cecily has the Jeep parked and the ignition off, Morgan jumps down and walks to my side of the car, her face searching for answers. What happened? Morgan had been extremely friendly with a lot of folks living in Skyliner, and I can grasp that this news is going to devastate her. About 10 years my senior, Morgan inherited her vast expanse of horse property from her father, a former Mexican jockey who came close to winning the Triple Crown not three, but four times. She was wonderful with horses, a natural gift which seemed to run in her blood, and while most of the horses stood far taller than Morgan did, her presence and poise assured them who truly was their master. Taking a breath, I open the door of the car and get out of the Jeep. Morgan, it's not good. She doesn't move, firm in her stance. Okay, tell me. Heathens burned and raided Skyliner, I confess reluctantly. We could, we could hear the screams from Gibbses. I'm hoping to scout out the army base and find us some resources, but we can't use anything motorized. We want to keep as quiet as we can. The less the army are aware of, the better. And I stole a key card off of one of their soldiers, which I can only hope gets us some kind of access. That's why this is rushed and why I need horses. We are quickly running out of time. Tears begin to stream down Morgan's cheeks. They're, they're all gone? All of Skyliner is burned. I feel Cecily move beside me on my left, her fingers slipping through mine. They're gone, Morgan, she discloses delicately. It's a total catastrophe, one none of us saw coming, and we're so sorry. Katie is on my right, and Sierra and Avery next to her. If we don't figure out a way to defend ourselves, the heathens will get us next, Katie asserts, reminding Morgan of how desperate our situation is. This is the best shot we have at getting any kind of reinforcements. Though she is visibly shattered, Morgan acquiesces. I have Prince, Sammy, and Manja tacked up for you. Katie, since you are riding with Grace, you two should take Sammy. Avery, you grab Manja. Sierra, Prince will take good care of you. Morgan sniffs back a sob. Please be careful. We can't afford to, to lose anyone else. I let go of Cecily's hand and walk to her, bringing Morgan into a hug. We'll be careful, Morgan, I promise. She pulls me in tight, and I can feel in her embrace the rigid dread we can't seem to shake out of our bones, the trepidation of a predator circling while we remain ignorant of its form. Within a few minutes, we are mounted and riding towards town, following the trail along the Deschutes River while keeping the horses at a slower pace to not attract unwanted attention or cause excessive noise to echo through the forest. Sierra takes point on Prince, Avery next on an overly eager manja, followed by me and Katie on Sammy, who remains steadfast beneath our legs. Out of the four of us, Katie is the only one with her weapon drawn, and it is attributable to the fact that her AR scope can can spot an incoming attack from much further away than the naked eye. We traipse along in silence on the trail, between the trees just beside the water, 
uneasy, yet determined. It isn't until I spot the old Reed Market Bridge that my heart begins to beat faster. What we are doing is unprecedented, something we have not dared to do before because it jeopardizes every one of our lives. And yet now, facing the growing rate of danger, there is no other option for us. I let out a soft, low whistle, signaling for everyone to come to a halt whilst we are hidden in the tree line and peek up to the sky, monitoring the sun's height. Patrol is set to drive by, per their routine, around nine, and I am quite certain we are a few minutes shy of witnessing the parade before we can sneak into downtown. Katie and I meticulously planned our ride into downtown just prior to the cavalcade, and regardless, we would have to wait for them to pass before we continued onward. Dismount, I'm out to Avery and Sierra. The four of us quietly descend, then lead the horses behind a thicker area of brush as we draw our weapons, squatting down to wait. Once they pass, I whisper, we stay for another three minutes to be certain there isn't a fucking tail. When the coast is clear, we go. Sierra, keep on the path until the Whitewater Park, and we'll cross over on the Colorado Bridge. That we will do fast. Got it, ladies? Got it, Avery answers for everyone. I'll make sure I pick up the pace, Sierra adds. Good. Once we are over, take the neighborhoods to the church. No hooves on the roadways, too much noise. Stick to the dirt and the sand. We'll hide the horses there and filter into downtown. We won't have much cover, so we'll have to make the call once we arrive as to whether or not we split up into pairs. Gracie, Avery speaks up. They're here. Our heads whip toward the bridge, where a brigade of army Humvees passes by. There are three trucks, each with one or two soldiers in the rear, heavily armed and scouting both the road ahead and behind them. In this particular moment, it's obvious they aren't searching for us. They are worried about running headfirst into the heathens after hearing the whispers of what those monsters had done to Skyliner last night. My hair stands on, on end when I realize Cal is in the bed of the third Humvee, and I feel Katie's upper body tense up beside me, her AR pointing his direction. I could do it right now, she utters. I can end this bastard. Just say the word, Biggs. Without warning, my hands start to tremble with hatred, and it takes me biting my own tongue so hard I taste blood to refrain from giving her the order. I only shake my head, jaw clenched tight so I don't allow the authorization to slip out. Katie relaxes, a knowing expression on her face. You should be the one who gets to, not me, she concedes. I take a heavy breath in and out and spit some of the blood onto the earth. I plan on it. Another few seconds pass, and the army patrol disappears, thus commencing the timer in my head. We need a few minutes of clearance, yet not too much, otherwise we run the risk that they might cut their ride short and return the way they've come. Over my shoulder, I peek at Sammy, whose knowing gaze is locked on mine, and he releases a disgruntled snort, bored. <laughs> I know, bud, I say in a low tone. One more minute. Seconds tick by, and we delay. Katie checks her focus on the AR. Avery has a quick sip of water. Sierra cracks her neck impatiently. And I try to pretend I'm not terrified. One more glimpse of the vacant road, and it's time to go. Mount, I announce, rising to my feet and striding to Sammy's left side. Katie follows, and I give her a leg up and over his back before I place my left foot in the stirrup and launch myself up and into the saddle. With Sammy's reins gripped firmly in my left hand, I don't even need to give him a quick squeeze of my heel to send him forward. Instead, he skips into a hasty walk just behind Manja and Avery, and I instinctively reach down to make sure my nine is an easy draw from the holster. The four of us trot down from the trees and underneath the Reed Market Bridge, keeping a steady tempo, with Katie resuming her post of lookout on her scope. There will only be about five or six minutes of exposure, and I hope with every fiber of my being we can make it over the Colorado Bridge without being found out. No one speaks while we ride swiftly down the trail, and though it feels like hours, we manage to make it to the bridge unscathed. Sierra picks up into a canner, and we cross the bridge speedily, taking a hard left on the other side and streamlining towards the dense trees of the neighborhood another minute of riding ahead. The thump of my heartbeat is in my ears, and I try to remember to keep breathing, wanting nothing more than to catapult into a gallop, but grasping we need to keep the horses as calm and controlled as possible. Once their hooves meet Riverside Boulevard, Sierra drops down again into a walk and guides us onto softer footing, leading the way to St. Helens Place and onto Trinity Church. Faster than predicted, 
we reach our destination without any hiccups. And as we dismount and tie the horses to the fenced and elevated walkway around the side of the church, my nerves are on end. Getting into downtown proves to be easy. But what about getting out? With the horses secure and shielded from any happenstance patrols, mainly by overgrowth and brush and small trees, I give a small signal with my hand, and the four of us retreat to the side of the church to get our investigation underway. In the shade of the enormous stone walls, there is some reprieve from the hot June sun, and I yank my knife from the holster to check there is one in the chamber and squat down. The rest of the girls follow suit. Katie lowers down on my left, swings the AR around her torso, and then removes it from her shoulder, giving her magazine a quick release before she loads it again. Sierra on my right already has her crossbow in her arms and crouches down, her eyes scanning our surroundings for ambush. Opposite me, Avery takes a knee and pulls her katana from the scabbard, the metal reflecting in the sun in a beautiful show of strength, and then returns it to its cover. 30 minutes. That's all we've got, I tell them diligently. The patrol will return, and the last thing we fucking need is a battle versus the army with just four of us. Katie and I don't have nearly enough bullets to get us out alive if shit hits the fan. So here's what we do. We cut down Idaho to Bond Street. At Louisiana, Avery and I cut right. Katie and Sierra stay straight. We will loop back to Trinity via lava and you two on the alley behind wall so you're off the main road and out of sight. Clear. Clear, Sierra answers. And we're scouting for? More than anything, I want you to observe. Watch who goes in, who goes out. Carrying what and the like. If they have guards out front, as predicted, you'll need to cut down Louisiana headed west and climb up onto the adjacent rooftop. A solid 15 minutes of surveillance will give us what we need, and that I can guarantee. I take a breath. We know very little about what is here because not one of us has ever ventured this close to the Army's base. Watch your asses. Got me? Got it, Avery and Katie reply in unison. What if we lose someone? Sierra asks. If you're caught, I say carefully, you fight like hell. I am not leaving here without anyone. We got here together. We leave together. End of fucking story. End of fucking story, Katie reiterates, her eyes on mine. There's a moment of silence while we collect ourselves for the mission at hand, not sure what to expect, and simultaneously hoping we find a piece of what we might need to endure the wrath of the heathens. With a look to Katie, then to Sierra... And finally, at Avery, I nod. Let's go. Scared shitless, I stand, propelling myself forward with the motivation of understanding that if I don't, Bend will be cast into flames and worse. I can feel Avery on my heels, Katie and Sierra sticking close to the rear as we stealthily cut down Idaho and proceed with a left down Bond Street. Panic rises in my chest because the last time I was on Bond Street, I was being hanged for murder and I hadn't returned since. Straight ahead, down the nose of my nine, the road is completely empty. There are giant potholes, enormous cracks in the asphalt, an overgrowth of foliage, and a ghost town covered in dust. My gaze darts to and fro, yet no movement can be identified, no noise is heard, so we keep hustling up bond, sweat drenching through my black jeans and ragged muscle tank. The heat of the morning sun soaks deep into my tattoos, my stride louder than I'd like, and I do my best to remain steadfast, to remember why I have to be here, and to remember that if I'm rattled, the other girls are too, and I have to keep my shit together. Troy Field to my right is so thick with grass and overgrowth that as we approach Louisiana, I move up against what's left of the chain link fence for cover and slow my gait, remaining cautious. We arrive, halt, and gently ease down to the earth. Two soldiers on the roof of the hotel, I say, rotating towards Avery, Katie, and Sierra. One out front of the old restaurant. The whole compound is surrounded by thick barbed wire fencing and what looks like a weak spot down near what used to be Sora Sushi. My mouth is so dry from nerds, I have to take a break to swallow and wet my palate as I speak. Katie and Sierra, you'll have to climb up the old mirror pond dry cleaner and scout from there. Bond is way too dangerous. Avery and I can use the cover of Troy Field to work our way down Louisiana. Find a spot, sit for 15, then we're getting the hell out of here. It doesn't take long for us to find our positions, and once Avery and I discover the perfect angle, the entire setup of the army compound becomes utterly clear. What do you got? Avery whispers, almost inaudibly, following five minutes of quiet. 
Old hotel is the barracks, I discern, I discern studiously. Since we know the kitchen is in the restaurant and bar area, I'd assume that's where their food storage is. Where do we think they're hiding the Humvees? Between the buildings. The old patio space? Exactly. Damn, that's so smart. They'd be concealed from everything in there. I'd guess the rest is stored in the old theater and conference room Big Miniman's had for special events. Weapons, equipment, you name it. The majority of the back buildings burned down during the riots, so we know those are rendered useless. Their frames are too weak to hold anything substantial. Another minute passes. Do you think they boarded up the open roof of the soaking pool? Avery asks, her eyes lighting up. That, truthfully, hadn't occurred to me, and I smirk. I would bet probably, probably not. I bet those bastards still use it. Unworthy pricks, Avery scoffs. <laughs> so unworthy, I concur. One of the guards on the roof answers a buzz on his walkie, and I grasp Avery's arm to hold us deadly still. Thankfully, whatever seems to be the topic of conversation is an inside joke, and the patrolman laughs before responding and continuing his saunter along the top of the building. We glance at one another, relieved. We have what we need, I voice. Got a few minutes to get back, but we'll need more time anyhow, considering one wrong move and we are toast in this field. I'll lead us out towards lava. Avery takes the helm. Gracie? Yeah, babe. Your hands are shaking. Bad. It's because the last time... The last time I was here, I was... You know... You were almost executed? Avery finishes my sentence for me. I was executed. I revise, and I... I came out like this. For a few seconds, Avery considers my words. You know... I like whatever this is. A small snort surfaces. That's probably good because I don't know how to be anything else anymore. She smiles. We wouldn't want you to be anything else. Reaching over, Avery grabs my shoulder and squeezes it. Ready? Ready. Returning to the church is uneventful, and within minutes we are joined by Sierra and Katie, who take cover with us next to the calm and undisturbed horses. You guys see anything? Katie asks, getting her breath. Think we got the general layout mapped. So when we do raid the compound, we know where to start, Avery confirms. I'd bet the morning is the best time, Sierra pens. We aren't a threat to them, so it's best we catch them while they're out on patrol and not on full guard. Less of them to have to take down. Agreed, I chime in. Let's get the fuck out of here before we get spotted. Standing, we each go to our respective horses, loosening their lead ropes from the hitch and checking our tack. As I tighten Sammy's girth, Avery and Sierra hop aboard Manja and Prince effortlessly, and, trying not to giggle, I proceed to hoist Katie up onto Sammy's 17-hand-high back, just as my ears perk up. It's the sound of a Humvee door slamming shut, followed by male chatter. Thought I heard something. Need to check the other side of the church. Might be heathens? Nah. Might be someone lost. The voice I recognize belongs to none other than Cal. My gaze jerks up to meet Katie's. Without a word, I rip the keycard from my belt and shove it into her hands. Give me the AR, I demand. Her eyes are full of foreboding. Biggs, no. Avery and Sierra hear them now too, and as I glance their direction, they are both petrified. Give me the fucking AR right now, I snap, grabbing my nine and pointing it at her, though my finger is nowhere near the trigger. Now, littles. Reluctantly, Katie pulls the gun off her shoulder and lowers it down to me, but as I reach for it, she doesn't release it into my hands right away. Let's just ride, she asserts, then lets the gun go. You said we'd leave together. We can make it. We can't make it, and you fucking know it, I hiss, throwing the strap over my shoulder and reholstering my nine. Stretching up to her, I grab Katie's form and look her square in the eyes, unblinking. I love you. Finish this. I spin towards Avery. Aves, ride. Now. But Grace, just go, Avery, Katie barks. I don't wait any longer. With the buttstock locked tight into my right shoulder, my concentration shifts to the front sight of the AR, right hand wrapped around the grip and the trigger, left on the handguard to steady the barrel. As my legs lurch ahead, I turn the corner to the left and come face to face with the Humvee of army soldiers, every one of them weightily armed. Time immediately halts. 
Cal is absolutely stunned to realize it's me barreling at him with an AR pointed straight at his group of soldiers. And I am quick to grasp, I don't have a chance in hell. With one soldier manning the mountain machine gun in the rear of the Humvee, three others armed with their guns out, and one final man lingering in the driver's seat. Instead, I hastily shift my sight from Cal to the driver and freeze where I stand, unmoving. Gracie, Cal screams, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't respond, only hold my aim and stay just where I am. Gracie, Cal bellows again. Gracie, look at me, look at me. Every gun is pointed my direction, yet my hands have ceased to tremble. My sight is directly on your driver, I yelled to Cal calmly. Tell him if he moves a muscle, he's dead. Sanders, Cal shouts, don't fucking move, man. From my sight, I watch Sanders lift his hands from the wheel and place them casually onto his head. And just as he settles still, my heart leaps as the girls gallop away one street over. Every member of the army gawks their way, weapons drawn and ready to fire. No one fucking shoots them, I bellow at the top of my lungs, unless you want to lose your own goddamn men. The soldiers ease, and I watch the girls ride away relieved. Well, at least for about six seconds. A bullet whizzes by my ear, so close the sound is thunderous, and on instinct I shoot Sanders and drop into a roll to my left, shielded by overgrowth of foliage three feet high and a piece of the church's fallen cement wall. Bullets start to explode my way from every direction, most missing my body by mere centimeters, and I return fire sporadically from the ground, striking two soldiers in the process. Out of the blue, a bullet hits the AR, dismantling the sight, and with my aim compromised, I swing the AR behind my back and draw the nine, launching myself to my knees and firing up and over the cement block towards the Humvee. I hit another soldier. The bullet strike not fatal, but enough to bench him from the game, and abruptly I notice Cal is no longer in my view. It's not a moment later that a bullet blasts through my left shoulder, and I collapse from the impact. I cannot feel anything on the left side of my body. As I peek down, I see blood gushing from my shoulder, and I frantically begin to scoot and retreat, my right hand still tightly gripping my nine and pointing it through the thick brush at whomever might approach. The bullet went through. His voice comes. That seems irrelevant when I'm about to die from blood loss. Stay low and keep steady. I can barely lift my gun. Just keep breathing. I'm going to die, aren't I? Not yet. My breath starts to taper, blood soaking through my tank top, and I swallow down a gasp or two as I continue to shuffle away from the men who destroyed my life. The men I hate with every fiber of my being. The men who raped us, murdered us, imprisoned us. These disgusting, vile men who view us as spoils. They would kill me, sure, but I give the rest of our faction a chance to live. And as my vision becomes spotty from losing so much, Cal wanders into the scene, standing over me. For a second or two, he examines the damage, my right arm not fixed enough to lift and fire the nine. However, what happens next is beyond logic. Cal drops to his knees and commences tending to my wound, a medic pack in his hands. You shouldn't be here, he hisses, diligently expecting my damaged shoulder. I can't keep you alive without more help. Shaking, I can sense my body going into shock, shock but I manage to spit out. Fuck you, you don't care if... You don't care if I'm alive. Bullet went through. We just need to stop the bleeding, he tells himself. I have to get you out of here before the next wave arrives. The confusion of what he's saying has my head squirming. What, what are you talking about? Cal glances around warily, then back to me. I killed the rest of them, but I have to get you out of here before the army sends one of the other patrols over. What is he saying? Why hasn't he killed me? It doesn't matter. Just do what he asks. Like hell I will. Do you want to live? Cal, what are you talking about? He grabs my face hard with both of his hands. I am not your enemy. They fucking are. This whole thing is something so fucked I can't explain it to you. Oh shit. The roar of the Humvee is clear as day, cutting through the ghastly silence of soldiers dead on the ground surrounding us. Grace, give me the nine quickly. Give it to him. Why? So you survive. Just, just take it, Cal. I can't, I can't even hold it. Cal seizes the gun, grabs his jacket to mute the shot, and fires through his left calf, 
letting out a deep groan of pain as the wound bleeds profusely. He sticks the weapon back in my hand. They'll be here soon, he declares softly, laying down next to me. Keep breathing. Can you manage to hit the side of my head? I comply without another thought, and on impact, hear an agonized yelp from Cal just as the second Humvee engine turns off. Grace, plead dead for now. Please. I don't understand. Another low voice rings out as the Humvee door slams. They're easily 20 or 30 meters away. Fuck! Pile out! We need to see if anyone else is still alive! Look, Cal says, I'm not one of them. They only think I am. I'm getting you out of here. Just don't move. But you... You raped me. You hurt me. His face contorts. Please stop talking or we're dead. I hear his voice in my head. Do what he asks. You need to live. And he's your only option. Fine. I shut my eyes tight, easing into the long grass in the hope no one notices us. On the other hand, what Cal just said makes my head swim even more than it already is. And I'm on the brink of losing consciousness. He's a liar. He's a liar that's keeping you breathing for now. Play along. Over here, a yell rings out from a few feet away. An approaching soldier goes straight to Cal and lowers to his squat, checking his vitals. We have a live one, he shouts, rising to his feet. Just as I peek my right eye open to see what's happening, I hear the sound of what resembles a faint whistle, and am instantly perplexed to witness an arrow burst straight through the soldier's neck, sending blood everywhere and his body to the earth, writhing in pain. Then, rapidly, I hear whistles from every direction, a wave of arrow fire that might rival the best soldier in the Roman army during their conquering of the world. And then come the bullets, lots of bullets. I hear screams, gasps, gurgles, and cries of pain and death. I don't move. I follow Cal's orders, my eyes shut tight. I can't tell how much time passes, hours, minutes, or seconds, lost in my haze of consciousness. Yet when it's finally quiet, I slowly open just a hint of my eyelids and notice Cal is gone, thus catalyzing panic through every ounce of my being. I hear voices, all male, until one distinct female voice towers above the others. She has to be here. Find her. I'm not leaving without her. Do you fucking understand me? Find her. I sit straight up, acting on pure intuition. Megan! I howl, blinking hard as my eyes attempt to search for a familiar face somewhere out in the abyss of grass and foliage. Megan, I'm here. I'm I'm shot and I, I can't. The color of my surroundings fades and my mind is losing lucidity. Megan, I try again, eyes losing focus. I see her. I hear another voice I know. Then a rustling and straight away, there's a person beside me picking me up off the earth. My mind is dwindling while my body is cradled up in his arms and my head falls into his chest. It takes every ounce of strength I have to glance up at who is carrying me away from whatever onslaught I just survived. The top part of his face, from his nose to his hairline, is painted black so he won't be recognized. Yet I would know this man anywhere. It's Chris, Megan's husband. He's alive. And the only thing I know is that he's carrying me to Megan. My Megan, my long-lost sister, she's found me at last. The world goes dark. Suddenly, my eyes are open, and I gasp in air. My lungs pull oxygen down deep into my lungs, then force it out over and over and over again, as if I'm being reborn. It takes nearly a minute for me to compose my respiratory tract, the burn in my lungs dry and splintered, as if I consumed fire. Once my wheezing absconds, I swallow and try to relax the tension from my body with no inclination as to where I am or how the hell I got here. I'm lying on my back, resting on something soft, and my left shoulder aches to the bone, reminding me that it's where I sustained a gunshot wound perhaps only hours before. The low-hanging fabric overhead is a bright red and orange pattern I find somewhat familiar. Thus, I can ascertain I'm in a camping tent, and a very nice one at that. Blinking my eyes to concentrate, I take another breath, wiggling my fingers and toes. Thrilled to note I haven't lost any immediate nerve function. 
There's a wool blanket on top of me, a cool washcloth on my forehead, and pillows underneath my knees to keep my legs elevated. And predictably, I'm not alone. But who's with me is an utter shock. You're lucky to be alive, someone says quietly to my left. My head twists toward the voice, and feel my, I feel my jaw drop open. Vaughn? He smiles wide, resting on a low camp chair beside my cot, elbows on his knees as he leans forward. Hi, Grace. I cannot think straight. But you're, you're supposed to be... Well, I was. We all were. Got someone else here with me, too. He flicks his head towards my feet, and sitting there grinning at me is Tristan who before the men were taken was my closest guy friend and one of the toughest bastards I'd ever met. My eyes well with tears. Well, fuck. Hi, boo, Tristan greets warmly, reaching his hand over to squeeze my right foot. I would get up and tackle you, but his gaze falls to his legs, or rather, lack thereof. Shit, Tristan, what happened? Well, a lot to be fair. Got these things blown off on a landmine somewhere in Nevada. But we'll get to that. Vaughn? Right. Grace, does anything hurt? Everything fucking hurts, Vaughn. Tristan snorts, and Vaughn's cheeks go a little pink. I just... We're supposed to make sure you stay comfortable. Well, I reply, why don't you tell me what the fuck is going on? Vaughn nods. I mean, we haven't been here more than a few weeks tops. On our way home, we were intercepted by Megan, and she told us what was happening in Bend. We knew if we went home, we'd be killed, so we've been here helping as best we can. Emotions swell in my chest, expecting the worst. Are you... How... How many made it? Fawn rubs the back of his neck with his hand, reluctant to speak, so Tristan does for him. Not, um... Not many. Slowly, Vaughn proceeds to move closer to me, sitting down at my side. He realizes what it is I'm actually asking. He's not with us. We split up to try and draw less attention to our groups and make it here alive. But we... We don't know what's happened to anyone other than us. I try to process this. And us is... Chris, myself, Tyler, Harrison, and of course, that pain in the ass at the foot of your cot. Five of you. Yeah. How are the others? Tyler's definitely seen better days. Harrison's a mess... Chris seems relatively unscathed, considering, but I think getting back to Megan healed him. Well, who's with the other group when you separated? Brooks, Dan, Sean, Mark, Crew, and a dozen or so others, all guys we know well, Tristan answers. They were all trying to find their way. We definitely weren't the only deserters. Was I hallucinating? Vaughn, Tristan, what happen out there what what is happening out there today Vaughn asks or before we got here well shit both I say he chortles then becomes serious again it's exactly as bad as you imagined we don't even know who we were fighting down in California we just did as we were told they kept a small group of us from town together in a platoon mainly as reserves in case the boys in the air on the sea couldn't handle it one night in the middle of the night The group of us were ambushed and taken prisoner, and to this day, I can't tell you who got us. I don't know how long we were there, weeks, months, but we survived interrogation only because we had no idea what the fuck was going on. I was starting to lose my mind, Tyler too, and that's when Tristan and Chris came for us. I peered at Tristan and then back to Vaughn. Came for you? They overpowered their guards and got all of us out. Fucking hell. You can say that again, Tristan quips. Once we got the boys out, we took whatever weapons we could and ran for it. All 18 of us escaped by pure pure fucking chance. Within 24 hours, the army rescue found us and brought us back to base, claiming we had actually won the war and not one of us wanted to wait in here otherwise. After a week or two of rest and gradually stockpiling food and supplies, Dan, Chris, and I put a plan together and we grabbed every guy we knew from Ben and deserted. It's been a long trip home on foot, but we did make it. I gave it them. How long did it take you? We started out last fall, but we knew we wouldn't make it by winter, Vaughn declares. 
So we found shelter with a nomadic community east of Reno, which is nothing but ash and dust these days. As soon as we could start walking, we made it here, oh, about three weeks ago. And Tristan, your, your legs, how did you... Thankfully, I stepped on a mine right before we made camp for winter, so I had months to heal, he divulges, the memory clearly rattling him. Harrison, Vaughn, and Chris helped carry me the rest of the way home. My heart aches. When did you split up? Vaughn takes this one. When we left what used to be Shasta. Harrison, Tyler, Chris, Tristan, and I got a couple days ahead of a head start to scout out town, and the main group was going to take a wider path through the desert to see if they could salvage anything or find anyone else. There is nothing out there, Gracie. No cities, no people. It's a fucking wasteland. Each of us dreaded coming home and finding this place in ruins. And clearly you girls have somehow kept shit under control. <laughs> control? No. Barely getting by is far more accurate. Taking a brief pause, I draw on a big inhale and let it go. Blaze? Yeah, Tristan responds. Natalie and Kristen are both still alive. They live together with the kids in town, hoping you two would make it back. And they're going to lose their minds when they know you're alive. Vaughn's entire face lights up. Natalie? Is she... Are they okay? Yeah, she's okay. The kids are okay. Natalie's really been one of the few who's managed to be steadfast in this nightmare. When we get back to town, you need to go see her, all right? Fuck yeah, I will, as soon as I can. My eyes go to Tristan, and I notice he's crying and avoiding my stare, so I let it be. He and Kirsten were about as ride or die as a couple can get, and I can assume that hearing she is alive and waiting for him to come home is better than every possible scenario that's run through his mind. And while both boys are lost in their own merry reflections of the women they love, I can't ignore that we still have so much to discuss. All right, so um, speaking of town, you guys want to tell me what happened today? Yeah, yeah, of course, Vaughn utters, giving Tristan a little more time to recover. Well, let me go back a little bit further. By the time we got to Megan, we were malnourished, weak, and just fucking useless. Megan's been helping us heal and get our strength back to what it was. Today we got word from our mole in the army and from Gibbs that you were in the city and in deep shit. Your friend Gibbs, I hate to tell you, has known where Megan's been the entire time. You were supposed to be in the know, but for some reason we only just found out Gibbs never told you Megan was alive. We got there to try and save you before the army killed you, though thankfully you got everyone out of there but yourself. Megan wouldn't leave without you. Katie was fucking right, I remark under my breath, incensed, and it was in that second I remember what happened after I'd been shot. Wait, a mole in the army? Yeah, Tristan chimes in, some asshole named Cal. The temperature of my body goes cold. Cal. Cal is your mole. Vaughn gazes at me, detecting something is very wrong. He's the shadow's mole. We really don't know the story too well. Grace, what is it? I just, there's no fucking way that's possible. What's not possible? Tristan presses. Did, do you know what he did to me? Dismayed, Vaughn shakes his head. What happened? My breath involuntarily quickens as rage fills my body. He, he fucking assaulted me. Vaughn is stunned and utterly speechless, mouth agape in surprise. Tristan's eyes narrow angrily, then harden. When? Last year, I tell them, we had a deal. Gasoline for moonshine. His assault is what eventually soured our relationship with the army. And it wasn't just me. Most of us have been raped by them. We get cornered alone and there's nothing we can do. The tent goes silent. Me and the guys will take care of it, Tristan asserts. He should be back here any day now, and we'll shoot him as soon as he's on sight. No fucking way, I contend, pushing myself upright regardless of the pain. You will do no such thing. I get to take care of it, and I will. You just have my back, yeah? Grace, I'm serious, Tristan. I get to give this motherfucker what he deserves. His scowl melts. Yeah. All right, fine. 
Vaughn, dismayed, proceeds to wrap his arms around me and draw me into a tight hug, careful not to put any pressure on my shoulder. Prior to the plague, Vaughn was a good friend, seven years my junior and one of the gentlest humans I'd ever met. As the three of us sit there, Tristan holding tight onto my feet and Vaughn squeezing me close, a part of me can't tell if this is some sort of dream, a bizarre happenstance of a miracle, or a fabrication of my own delusions. But I don't have time to settle the debate, because in the next second I hear the zipper of the tent flap sing, and as it opens, there is Megan, smirking at me. Man, oh man, did I miss your crazy ass. There she stands, as if she hasn't aged a day. A strong five foot seven, Megan's mahogany-colored hair hangs long past her shoulders, though on her head is a beige cowboy hat, and around her waist are two holstered Ruger revolvers. Her neck displays an almost identical scar to the one on mine, and we stare at each other, me in disbelief, her in good humor. Suddenly, I let out a loud laugh while I simply look at her. Babe, how is this real? She scoffs and bends down, making her way into the tent with Vaughn, Tristan, and me. Vaughn releases me from his arms, and when I straighten up, a small and involuntary wince of pain hits and radiates from my shoulder down to my left fingertips. Megan produces a canteen of water and hands it over, and I grab for it, not comprehending how dehydrated I am until I'm five gulps deep. They told you how you got here? I take a break from the water and hand the canteen back over, wiping my lips dry. Yeah, at least the short version. If the boys made it back to town, you know the army would have slaughtered them. I only kept them here to keep them safe and nurse their asses to more than skin and bones. And I'm so glad you did, I tell Megan. What the heck has happened? I thought you were... I thought you were dead. No one told me anything. You can blame Gibbs, she proclaims with irritation. I was under the impression you and you alone knew I was out here. Yeah, but out here doing what? Her eyebrows purse, like they always do when she's troubled. The night after the hanging, when you fell asleep, Gibbs and Alexa came to find me. Well, really they wanted you to do it, but I was the only one awake, and then I insisted. We weren't fully aware of how sinister the heathens were yet, and we did know they were beginning to focus on taking children as their prize. Sacrifice. Dinner. Whatever you want to fucking call it. It's fucking disgusting. They asked me about, mm, I don't know, five minutes into the conversation, if I would take a dozen others and start hiding the children in a safe haven they'd encountered near Smith Rock, and I couldn't refuse. That's where we are, I query? Smith Rock? Megan grins. Essentially, yeah. We've been able to evade the heathens in the army, but we have sustained losses, and those have been horrendous, to put it, tight, to put it lightly. Not wanting to hear more, I don't press her on it. How many children are you housing? About 40, including Winnie. Winnie, Claire and Anna's daughter. You have Winnie, I state, barely holding my collected disposition. Can I... Would it be okay if... A smile. Winnie, Megan shouts loudly, reading my mind. There is a padding of tiny feet running towards the tent, and I look over to witness Winnie beaming at me, her beautiful dark hair and pigtails, and a patch of freckles across her seven-year-old nose. Aunt Gracie! She exclaims with glee and rushes to me, diving into my lap. A reverberation of excruciating pain shoots through my shoulder, but I ignore it and hug Winnie close, tears welling in my eyes. Winnie, I whisper, rocking to and fro, you've gotten so big. She pulls away and nods. I can outrun all the boys in camp. <laughs> Just like your mama, Claire, I say warmly. I missed you. Will you tell the mamas I say hi, she requests. Of course I will, I promise. And you'll see them soon. Winnie, we'll be on a bit. Give us a little more adult time, okay? Megan appeals to her gently. Without a word, Ninny, Winnie gives me a kiss on the cheek and leaps up, taking off and out of the tent. So, Megan says with Winnie gone. I'm assuming we have other things to discuss, you know, aside from being fucking happy as shit to see each other. Shifting in his seat, Tristan glares at Megan, and already I can guess what he's about to interject. Did you know your mole raped her, Megan? What the fucking hell is that about? If there's one thing I know about Megan, 
Instead, she doesn't lie, no matter how hard the truth is. And her response floors me. I did know. Tristan has no words in retaliation. Though his face is so red, it looks like he's about to explode. My eyes go wide. You knew? I cry. What the hell, Megan? Gracie, it's not like that, she declares, holding up a hand. What the fuck, Megan? Vaughn nearly screams. You told us we could trust this guy. What kind of bullshit is this? The kind that keeps her alive, Vaughn, Megan roars to shut him up, then immediately returns her attention to me. About six months ago, Cal was wandering in the desert after barely escaping being captured by heathens, and we caught him a few miles from here, near death. I told him if he worked for me, fed me intel, he'd have a place with us in the end, and he didn't have a choice, considering there was nowhere else to fucking go. He told me that before we found him, he was a bad person, all right? Told me about you about all the fucked up shit he did, but that he wanted another chance, and he promised me he would protect you. So I gave him that chance, and he kept up the act, taunting you, baiting you, not wanting the army to second-guess him. But think about every time in the last six months he's been near, every close call you've had, where you only just got away. You're a damn good shot, Grace, and you're smart, but he's been aiding you wherever he can. Megan halts, sadness in her tone. I just wanted to keep you alive. It never happened again, and I told him if it did, I'd shoot him myself. We were silent for a long time. Does this mean I can't kill him then? I ask at last. Megan shakes her head. No, if you want to kill him, I think you should. I didn't forgive him for assaulting you, and we'll never know if he's truly changed until it's too fucking late, even though he's been trying to convince me otherwise. Keep in mind... He did save you this morning. Without him, you wouldn't be breathing. And this is one time of many. I feel strangely numb, but concede by changing the topic, my brain not able to fully grasp the conversation we're having. The heathens took Skyliner last night. We got word just as we were taking off into town, she conveys. If we don't find a solution soon, we're all going to be dead. There's nowhere to go, Vaughn adds. Nothing. The closest civilization we found was near Shasta, Tristan says, and it was already struggling for survival, not nearly as well off as Bend is. I nod. Cal didn't mention I stole his keycard, did he? Confused, Megan stares. No, he didn't. A spark of amusement hits me. Good to know I still have a little bit of skill left. You stole his keycard, Vaughn asks. I stole his keycard, and I have an idea. Which is, Tristan queries? I don't know what exactly we need to do, but I do know we need to arm ourselves as best we can, I reveal. And I think I know just how to do it.